Hello, and welcome to What We May Be, Race and Education. This series is the premiere of Seattle Shakespeare Company's podcast, Rough Magic. My name is Rafael Molina. I'll be your host. I'm an artist, an activist. I've worked throughout Seattle as an actor, composer, producer, designer, and educator. My interest in creating and developing this series is to platform BIPOC community members and to have the transparent conversations about social justice, education, theater, and Shakespeare. For those who may not know, BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. It is an inclusive term to be used if you're talking about people of color in general compared to the white experience. It is not to be used to perpetuate the notion that Black, Indigenous, and people of color are all homogenous. My hope is that through these interviews and examinations of the micro and the macro, you, the listener, will leave every episode in this series with your mind a little wider, your heart a little fuller, and inspired to dream of more ways to actively decolonize, restructure, and create accountability. In this episode, we'll be exploring the foundations of education and what it looks like in a micro-to-macro examination, starting at the individual, then to the organizational, all the way up to the institutional and bureaucratic level. Our interview guests on this episode are Manny Qualling, Michelle Burse, and Deidre D. Woods. Let's get started. Hi, Deidre. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name's Deidre D. Woods. I am a Black woman. Um, and I am an artist. Um, these days, people are asking, "What? Who? Who are you? Define yourself." Um, these right now, it's say I'm an actor, storyteller, um, change agent, educator, creator. I, um, outside of acting and teaching, I started a platform called Artists of Color Seattle, or AOC two hundred six. Um, via Instagram. I started it about a year ago. And the purpose of the platform is to um, lift uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color voices, art, artist voices um, in Seattle area and beyond um, through a non-white gaze. So creating content promoting people's work in our city. And it has been amazing to be able to give voice to people um, who really have some things to say. Thank you. What was the spark that started Artists of Color Seattle? Literally, I, I feel like I was driving in my car, which I often am, um, on the way to rehearsal or, you know, back from um, rehearsal or a show. And I really started to think about who is in charge of covering uh, theater and whose voice are we told to listen to when it comes to what shows to go see, um, uh, what kind of content we should consume. And here in Seattle, it is primarily through uh, white people. And so I wanted to have a place where BIPOC folks could go and say, hey, I want to see a show, but I want to make sure I'm supporting people in my community and people who look like me. 
So the idea was to have a place where you can go and you can say, oh, hey, oh, this show is happening. I'm going to go check that out. And even for people who aren't BIPOC, there are a lot of people in this town who don't always want to go to a play and see all white people on stage. So for me, I wanted to create a safe haven for us to be able to come and celebrate each other and to know what's going on. And so it literally just was like this idea. And it's so funny. The first logo that I had, (laughs) I had a black scarf. And so I took a picture, like a close up of the scarf. And then I just like had, I took the letters AOCS and I just typed them in and I put it over it. I was like, okay, this is the logo for now. And then I just went with it. And I knew that I was doing something right because it just felt good to me. I didn't really care what people would think about it. I felt like people would be open to receiving it. And it has um, surpassed my expectations of what I thought even thus far. And I I feel like I'm still in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Well, what are you excited about as you watch your company grow? I'm it's so funny in a way. It still feels like this this little project that I wanted to do. And when I hear people talk about it or even ask me the types of questions that you are now, it's almost surreal. Um, but I am excited to really lay roots and um, have it build build a legacy of sorts. You know, I always envision AOCS just being the beginning, but it could also be AOC LA, AOC NYC, AOC Detroit. So, you know, I had always had plans to hopefully expand beyond just Seattle because I feel like the conversations that I'm having here with artists in Seattle are happening in other cities as well. And for me, part of it also is, you know, for a long time, if you're working primarily as an actor, you feel like you don't have power. Like your job is to come in the room, you do the thing, and then you're done. You know, a lot of our relationships with theater is are very transactional. So, you, you know, you create your character and you build this life, but sometimes you can feel stilted by that. So with this, you know, hopefully I feel like artists come and find a safe haven as what else are you interested in? What else do you want to talk about? You know, I'm asking the questions to people, you know, what type of artist do you see yourself as? Not how the industry has um, labeled you, but what do you want to talk about? And I think that is very freeing and liberating for people, especially right now. Mm-hmm. That's interesting too that you bring that up because it's it feels connected to creating equitable spaces, right? Spaces that you feel listened to, you feel like you aren't categorized um, as any single particular thing, and that your full self can be acknowledged, right? Yes, yes, full self. That is. my goal. And it's helping me to achieve that as well. While I am um, offering that to others, I really feel myself authentically stepping into, you know, my role as a leader, as a change agent. These are things that I always felt within me. But for some reason, I I kept myself so small. I watched um, Lovecraft Country last night to show 
on HBO. If you haven't watched it, watch it. And it literally sat with me and deep in my soul and a black woman just claiming herself and saying I am and who she is, is really important, especially right now. And so I'm stepping into that as well. Mm-hmm. How do you think that uh, systemic racism influences education and the educational programs that we create? I think it's, you know, directly related. Systemic mm-hmm. racism um, is the effects of systemic racism is not going to go away just because people recognize it mm-hmm. more widely. Um, you know, inaccess is a is a big thing when you think about, you know, the beginnings of the education system here in this country and how it was designed specifically to only educate um, white men. And then mm-hmm. you say land only white men if you get to a certain level. And so the system was never designed with people of color in mind. And, you know, they use the system to hold people back, you know, and you think about this election cycle, you think about the poll tax, you know, most people know about that now, but, you know, having to go in order to vote Mm -hmm. to pass a test where you have to have a written test and you have to risk, I mean, you have to recite parts of, I, I can't remember if it was like the constitution or the bill of rights or something that I don't even know now, but the expectation is that, you know, people of color are inferior and that inferiority I think is definitely the viewpoint of the inferiority is definitely still present today in our education system. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like education programs are, I I can't speak specifically towards public schools um, Mm -hmm. per se, but just from an outside perspective they aren't as equitable as they could be. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've you seen, I mean, going as an artist, going into school programming, first of all, one of the big problems is a lot of theaters, the most people of color that they employ are on the educational tours or in the education program. Mm-hmm. And that is somewhat problematic for me. Mm-hmm. I think that it is important for children to see um people who look like them and people who don't look like them. But it also sends a message because a lot of times the education programs are kind of like the afterthought mm-hmm. in a way. It's not um, it's not the showstopper. So, you know, you're fine to be in our show for a tour, but maybe not on our main stages. After a while, <laughs> I think that we can no longer in this day and age see that and not recognize it as problematic. Mm-hmm. And not everyone does mm-hmm. it, but I have witnessed it. Um, and it is an issue that I think theaters, as they're reimagining what type of organization they want to be, um, are taking a look at, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, Deidre, for your thoughts and your time. Thank you. 
You can stay up to date with Deidre and Artists of Color Seattle on Instagram at handle AOC206. Up next, an interview with Michelle Burrs. Hi, Michelle. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Michelle Burst. I'm the education director at Seattle Shakespeare Company, which means that I run all of our ed programs, and that's our student matinees, our in-school workshops and performances, and our after-school and summer camps. I've been with the company since 2009, and before that, I was the education intern at Seattle Repertory Theater, uh, working and learning under the great Andrea Allen. I hold degrees from the University of Washington in theater and community environment and planning, and I have my master's in education from Antioch University, Seattle. I'm very passionate about community-based theater and environmental education and theater education, and I'm also the proud owner of Zephram, who is the surliest of the Seattle Shakes office dogs. <laughs> Thank you. What is educational programming in the context of Seattle Shakespeare? Um, Educational programming in the context of Seattle Shakespeare Company is just any program aimed primarily at students, um, and that can be students of all ages. We work with students uh, K through 12, and then we also have programs all the way up through, um, we have a, a, currently have an educational program running at a retirement home Um, So anywhere where people are looking to learn more about Shakespeare, about theater, that's where we come in. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the factors and who's involved in creating and generating the educational programming at Shakes? It's a combination of factors. Um, As the education director, I ultimately guide the uh, the formation of all of our educational programming. Um, but the history of the programs also dictates some of it. We've been doing these programs for a long time and we have a bunch of teachers who rely on us to come back year after year and love the programs that we do. So we want to serve their needs. So that is, that's part of it. Um, and also we are primarily a producing organization, not an educational organization. So the main stage, uh, produces the shows that they want to show to our main audiences. And we sort of do our best to integrate that into our educational programming. Mm -hmm. Thank you. In terms of, of funding, who generally funds the educational department at Seattle Shakespeare? Where does that funding come from? Ah, that is a great question. It comes from all over the place, really depending on the program. The education department in general and Seattle Shakes as a nonprofit organization is funded by individual and institutional givers across the board. That's just sort of a baseline of our company. So that is a huge part of it. But for the individual programs, you know, it it's really, I find it very challenging because That means that schools who have to pay for programs that aren't as supported by grants and programmatic specific grants, they rely on, you know, schools are funded by property taxes, I believe, in Washington state, uh, and also their PTAs. Um, And that makes it challenging because it means that schools with a stronger PTA or in a fancier neighborhood have more access to funds than schools that don't have that. 
And we try to make that up by giving away uh, some of our programming. We have a first ones on us program where schools can try us out for free. Um, And we try to give financial aid as much as we can. But again, without specific programmatic grant funding, that does mean that there's some inequality there in terms of which schools feel that they can access our programs and which feel which schools feel that they cannot. Mm, that is frustrating. That's frustrating to hear. What educational programs currently exist at Seattle Shakespeare Company? So we have programs in schools where we go to schools and work with students over a long period of time. We produce shows uh, that specifically tour to schools. Every year we send out six actors in a van with two shows that they rehearse, uh, you know, in the winter. And we send them out in the spring to perform uh, 90 minute Shakespeare plays fully produced um, at schools across the state of Washington. Um, this is one of the education programs that I'm most proud of um, because it is a way to bring Shakespeare to schools that are not near a population center like Seattle that has a, a lot of options for, you know, going to see student matinees, going to see professional theater. We take this tour out all across the state of Washington. We visit small towns. We'll perform in their uh, community center, their high school theater, their gym, their cafeteria, whatever space they have, um, we'll perform professional Shakespeare for them. Several years ago, we transitioned from having the tour be considered accessible by going out and visiting these geographically distant communities, as well as we visit schools in Seattle and Spokane and the Tri-Cities and Vancouver. But we also decided that we were going to hire a majority of the artists on tour to be artists of color, because so many of the students across the state of Washington um, are, you know, are Hispanic students. They are Latinx students. They are students of color in the cities. They are, uh, we have a really diverse population in the state of Washington, and we really wanted to reflect that on stage with our artists. And then three years ago, we made the decision to also have one of our shows be bilingual um, in Spanish and English, and to have uh, a bunch of the actors, you know, have bilingual Shakespeare text. And that's been a really a great program to send across the state of Washington to those students who are bilingual in Spanish and then can see themselves even more on stage. We have an after-school program known as Short Shakes, um, which is where students uh, perform a, uh, they rehearse and perform the same show that is being performed on our main stage. Um, So I think last last spring that was as you like it so our students came in and did their own version of as you like it using the main stage set and sort of setting it in this in a similar world that worked with what was going on on the main stage and they also get to meet the actors who are their counterparts the professional counterparts um, and finally we have our uh, summer programs we have a couple of camps that are just a week long to give students a taste of Shakespeare. And then we have our flagship camp, which is our production intensive. And that is a three week camp where students uh, design and build as well as rehearse and perform a Shakespeare production in three weeks. Um, This is the program that students come back to again and again um, 
to, you know, make friends and have their own artistic vision realized on the stage because they do have a huge hand in designing it. And then also we have them paint the sets. And I taught a couple students of our high school students to use power tools last year to say like, let's, let's build this set together. Let's learn some new skills and put that together. Cool. Thank you. In terms of racism and anti-racism, how often is that something that is actively factored in when creating material for students? I would say it depends on the program. Um, I, I feel like the the statewide tour is the place where we have had the most conversations and had the most, honestly, freedom to be able to address that and to um, think about ways to make our process more equitable, um, ways to hire more artists of color and say, we want you to tell your story and we want you to, to have your vision on the stage. Um, particularly with our, uh, you know, we always, we always tour Romeo and Juliet because that is, you know, the demand from the schools really helps us to pay for the second show whatever that may be. Um, and so that second show is really where we have the flexibility to say, what is the story that you want to tell? Where do we want to set this so that it, you know, it brings a new story, um, you know, connected to Shakespeare to light and it brings it to these students. Um, so that, I think that's a, a place where we do have that freedom and that flexibility. And some of our other programs, uh, we try to bring, uh, an anti-racist lens in when possible, but we're also under the constraints of I've got 50 minutes to introduce 35 students to Romeo and Juliet. How much can we do? The schools expect a certain amount of, of curriculum and, you know, iambic pentameter and discussion of Capulets and Montagues. And that's what we do. Mm -hmm. How do you think systemic racism influences educational programming at Seattle Shakes. It's interesting because I feel like because we've been we're in a, we're in a white supremacist society. Um Shakespeare being a white author is considered, you know, one of the greatest playwrights of all time and in the whole world even though, you know, he's from Western Europe, he's a white author. Um but having that connection to to, you know, Shakespeare I think for our company unlocks some opportunities in schools where people say Shakespeare, like he's safe, he's classic, he's embedded in our, in our white culture. And so we have an opportunity to bring a Shakespeare show into a school or bring curriculum into a school. And if we use that opportunity to say, we're going to create this, you know, beautiful bilingual Hamlet that is set in, um, you know, in Los Angeles and features an all POC cast. Um, that is an opportunity for us to like use the Shakespeare to tell a slightly different story. And we do that when possible. Um, but in a lot of cases, we're still working on figuring out what are ways that that is possible. Like we're, we're not perfect. We're not doing as good of a job as we could be doing. Um, but we're, you know, we're, we're doing our best. Thank you, Michelle, for your insights and your time. Absolutely. Up next, an interview with Manny Qualling. 
Manny, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Manny Kowalian. I'm the executive director for Inspire Washington. Uh, we are our state's primary cultural advocacy organization, uh, promoting and advocating for the important work within science, heritage, and the arts throughout the entire state. But, you know, how do I identify myself? I'm Filipino-American. I grew up here in Seattle, born and raised Washingtonian. I'm a theater artist, a teaching artist, and a performer. Thank you. What is educational programming in the context of some of the various organizations that you've worked for? You know, I've really had the opportunity to work um, almost exclusively for much of my career for um, uh, BIPOC organizations, uh, such as um, the Northwest Asian American Theater, uh, which is uh, no longer in business today, but at the time I believe was the second Asian Pacific American theater in the country, uh, as well as uh, the Wing, you know, our Pan Asian American Pacific uh, Museum here in Seattle, and also um, Langston Hughes Performing Art Institute, or the Performing Arts Center, when I was the managing director. Um, in all of those organizations, uh, education was really at the core of its mission. Um, you know, uh, when, when you are working with a community um, that is marginalized, um, and, uh, and, and let's get really deep into that. What does that mean? What that usually means is that um, uh, their important stories have not been told or shared um, uh, with the broader community and also sometimes within the community. There's a lot of education that you just do within your own community about things that are not uh, spoken about in American history or not framed in the right way. Um, so therefore, education um, becomes really important. Also, within the Black community, with the Asian Pacific American community, our advancements come through activism, and activism is most powerful when it's informed, right? Where have we been? Um, and um, and where really good activism happens is where you, where you just stop at where we've been and where we are today, and you really let the young people decide where do you want to go next. So I think that in all of these organizations, education has been at the core of the work uh, because um, because it is it, it may sound corny, but it's the pathway to the future. It's your young minds. It and it's also you. It's where you start and saying you are living a world where your resources are not equitable and they're not personal. They're not specific to you. You are learning about American history, but they're not talking about your family. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What does educational programming mean at Inspire Washington? Well, we play a really, we play a very unique role in the world of educational programming. So, I mean, we're, Inspire Washington is an advocacy organization. So we just firmly believe in the value and the impact of programs um, that uh, inspire curiosity, creativity, and critical thinking. Um, so that's science, heritage, and the arts. We advocate for the work, right? But now advocacy is a tricky slope because on one side, um, you know, you just want it to happen. But also, you know, you do have to kind of play a role in, in, in advocating for how it happens. For example, where does it happen? Yeah. Is it equitable, right? What is the quality of it? And now at the same time, we're not the program providers and, you know, Washington State is really big. And so therefore we can't be actually like on the ground and within 
every school district, right? Or within every city in town, because there's close to 300. Um, but one thing that I've gotten a real appreciation for is so much of the work is driven by public policy, right? Mm. And advocacy is normally at the grass tops of, you know, where are the resources being distributed? Who's making the rules for it, right? So, um, so that's where our work is. Mm. Thank you. What are your thoughts and in your experience, who has the agency in terms of generating and creating educational programming within organizations? We always talk about like the direction or focus of an, of an organization, right? But the reality is an organization is a collective of people, right? And um, organizations will have missions and they will have objectives and they will have goals and then therefore they fundraise and they budget around that. But um, but it really is, I, I mean, nothing's going to happen in an organization unless somebody steps up on that staff and says, I think we should be doing this, you know? Um, at Northwest Asian American Theater, we were very focused when I started on staff there on uh, promoting Asian American playwrights and promoting Asian Pacific American talent and doing a season of shows, right? Uh, but when I stepped into this new role as Associate Artistic Director, a mix of what I wanted to do and a mix of what was standard practice at the time is that associate artistic directors normally ran the education department. So I had the opportunity to decide what does education look like? Um, and there were still choices there. It could have been, it could have really been focused on adult artists, right? But I was like, I think we need to start educating youth, you know, and, um, we really need to, um, do partnerships and with uh, with community-based organizations that serve young people and it should be focused on skill development right it's not just art for art's sake it really is um it's beyond that mm, absolutely uh, i want to talk about the money in your experience with the various organizations and companies you've worked for who generally funds educational departments in the arts broadly i would say and it's hard. It's and it's a little bit hard for me to even say this because now I deal with advocacy on the federal level when I see a lot of money that's being advocated. But I would say most likely <laughs> um, the money that's funding some programs such as um, um, uh, ACTS, fantastic playwriting program, um, or um, uh, you know anything that Seattle Shakespeare is doing. Uh, it's it's. Uh, it's per, it's personal philanthropy. It's individual donors. It's foundations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What are your thoughts on systemic racism and how it affects present day education and programming? You know, a lot of times we wash away race when we have discussions about difficult times in American history, right? We talk about decisions, we talk about the politics, but let's talk about race. How did race come into that play, right? And then also there's kind of, I'm, a, I'm sorry, I'm a theater person. I'm always looking at the big narrative, right? <laughs> and when you look at the big narrative, it's hard, It's kind of hard to say, I know that we may have covered all these chapters and talked about the politics at play or the political realities or the vote of Congress, but let's talk about the fact that in all of these narratives, it is the people of color <laughs> that get, you know, whose lives aren't valued, right? Mm. So how do you ignore that? How can that not be racism? I think also in education, I, you know, I think it really comes down to some of the most fundamental, most obvious questions that it's shocking that's never been asked, which is one, what is being taught, right? Two, who is teaching it, right? Three, who's in the classroom and what relevant issues and topics are you not teaching? right? I was a high school student. 
I read that I read that small, short, very short chapter um, about Japanese American internment, right? Um, but I didn't walk away understanding what really happened, right? And uh, it took me um, being 18 years old, auditioning for my first show at the Northwest Asian American Theater, and getting cast in a musical um, set within an internment camp, um, the Minidoka internment camp in Idaho for me to go, what? I mean, just, you know, the moments during that rehearsal, I was the youngest person in the cast and uh, the moments during the rehearsal where the director would have to say, yes, Manuel, this happened. <laughs> you know, like it was a prison, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, but there it is. So, I mean, I, and I think that's a really great example of what I said. So there I was. What is being taught? We're doing a show about Japanese-American. We're share, uh, internment. We're sharing this story. Who's teaching it? The director is a Japanese-American. She was born in an internment camp. And what is the frame with this, within it being t- taught? This story is definitely social justice, you know? But schools don't operate necessarily within the frame of, we're going to educate people for the purpose of social justice, you know? I mean, it just kind of like, I mean, here's the thing. It's like, I, I feel, you know, essential learning requirements, the Ehlers, what is required to be taught? Well, who decided that, right? And, and, and was that developed with an equitable lens? Was that developed with a lens of really thinking about how will this serve the you know the diverse kids in this classroom for example like if you know the the a lot of these things are so base so broad it's just supposed to speak to everyone but it's like but what does it mean to yakima kids right 55 percent of those kids are latinx right what is it saying to them how is this relevant to them? Are you talking about their experience or can they connect this? Right. That's where I feel like, uh, you know, education is so big and broad. It's not necessarily very personalized. And I think that, you know, how do we bring more equitable learning is, is one, we start at the, we start with how are educators being taught, right? <laughs> what is the framework within their, with, with, what, within the realm of what they can teach? And, and how can that be a little bit modified based off of who's in the classroom? And, and I know that there's, you know, some, some schools will always say, well, I mean, there's some give. I mean, a teacher can really look at the class and teach that. But it's like, but yeah, but you're also dictating. I mean, teachers are on a race for their lives from the start of the school year to the end. They've got all of these benchmarks and, and things that they got to do and they got to teach. And school time is, you know, is, is, is really limiting. And then you've got a constant amount of, challenges and unique issues that take up time and resources such as you know so i i mean where is the give for that you know it's a great movie scene where the where the teacher goes everyone pick up your book let's put it down i'm going to teach you about something else today right (laughs) no i don't really think that it happens it's a great scene in a movie right but in reality i don't know that that really the teacher god bless them for doing all the things that they do has really that bandwidth yeah, no, I I agree with you 100%. So, so what are your thoughts on on dealing with these issues on a systemic level? To really fix it systemically on where does that conversation start, right? Who is having it, right? But in the meantime, and it goes back to what I said before, you kind of got your short-term objectives, you got your long-term ones, but in the meantime, what we need, what all of our school districts all across Washington state need is they need organizations like Seattle Shakespeare Company enhancing the education, broadening it, right? 
Um, they need organizations, cultural organizations who have the ability to be much more nimble, to have the ability that can transform themselves based off of uh, the conversation that's happening in our modern day life, right? <laughs> and not playing by a 1950s playbook. That is what we can do right now. Mm-hmm. What about your, your long-term, you know, you were saying you, you got your short-term and your long-term objectives. What are your, what are your long-term thoughts? So I do believe in the power of voting, you know, let's, who's making the decisions. Very, very, very important. And, um, and, um, and it's not just, it's not just about, I mean, um, voting to have diversity of leadership is also plays out in the critical areas of staffing, right? I mean, it's not just, I mean, I've really learned too. I mean, I've, I've interacted with all of our congressional delegation. Uh, it's not just the lawmaker, it's their staff, right? Um, I mean, look at the, the, the administration right now. There's not a lot of diversity in that administration. So it's not just the person you elect, it's their values. What kind of team are they going to assemble to represent their district, their cities, and their communities. Mm. Thank you, Manny, for your insights and your time. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you so much for asking me. That's all for today. This series is a fundraiser for Seattle Shakespeare Company's educational department. If you enjoyed this content and would like to learn more about Seattle Shakespeare's educational programs, or you're able to support us with a donation, please visit seattleshakespeare.org education celebration. We'll be back next week with another episode. So subscribe wherever you get this podcast from.